Dr. Joshua McNall is a Bible professor, and he tells a story about a couple that were friends of he and his wife. He said that this uh, couple had gone to visit their kids who were in college, and while they were waiting for the kids to get out of class, they went for a walk, loving husband, loving wife, hand in hand, stepped into a busy crosswalk, and there was a car there that was out of control, and it slammed into them and killed her and broke his leg. As a result, um, Dr. McNall and his wife rushed to the hospital. They were there with the family and the friends, and as they were learning what had happened and were talking about it, someone mentioned that the husband's glasses had obviously been knocked off in the accident. And so the next day, his son went to look to see if he could find those glasses. Now remember, this is a day, a night, and part of the next day that's gone by already. Cars and trucks, emergency vehicles, foot traffic, bicycles on a busy road. But there they were, his glasses, the wire frames kind of bent, but still very wearable. And so he brought them back to the hospital. And as they had reconvened there in the waiting room because the husband was going to have surgery on his leg, someone mentioned how lucky the husband was that his glasses were still wearable. And Dr. McNall writes these words. He says, somehow the discovery of the glasses struck me differently. I fumed at God with Job-like questions. Why, in all his grand omnipotence, had God seen fit to preserve a pair of glasses while letting a precious woman die just feet away? It seemed random and stupid. It still does, writes McNall. Not all stories end with greeting card cliches. We left the hospital soon after, but just before the husband went to surgery, I watched as another friend bent down close to speak with him. The friend asked, can you tell me what you're most afraid of? The husband answered, being alone, being alone. There's some of you, those of you watching online that hear me say that and it resonates deep within you because whether you're young or whether you're old, you can feel absolutely alone. It may be because you've lost someone you love. It may be because of bullying. It might be because of sickness or loss of a job or any number of reasons, but you feel absolutely alone. So what's this have to do with our series of long story short? Well, if you remember last weekend, I talked about Job. And I said Job was this guy who had everything and had everything taken away. This man of God complained to God and questioned God's justice in doing this until God kind of reached down and gave Job a front row seat to the beginning of the world. And gave him kind of the story and Job goes from complaining and griping to worshiping God because he saw himself in the context of God's big story. So the reason I talk about this sense of aloneness is whatever causes that in your life and my life, something helps us when we're able to see how we fit into God's big story. 
Because the Bible isn't just about Abraham and isn't just about the Apostle Paul. The Bible is about you and me. No matter how old you are, how young you are, you're in the Bible. You're part of that story. And if you can see yourself in that story, then you're able to see the big picture and it gives you tremendous hope. So last weekend we started by looking at God's big story. I said, if you get a chance, go to thebibleproject.com. You can download some of these graphics. How many of you have been to that page? It's a great website, isn't it? And uh, I went there, of course, and I grabbed a couple things they allow us to grab. And I put up this big one that's kind of a, an overview of the entire Old Testament. And I said that in the Hebrew, what we call our Old Testament is called the... You guys are the best. All right. So loud, so strong. The Tanakh. And I said the Tanakh is divided up into three sections. And I said that the same books are in the Tanakh that are in our Old Testament, but they're arranged differently for a very important reason, a purpose. So the first grouping of books, like in our Bible, is called the? Very good, the Torah. Genesis through uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are found there, right? Then I said the second grouping of books is called the? That's a little harder, right? The Nevi'im, all right? So the Nevi'im. And uh, then I said the third grouping of books is called the? <laughs> we went downhill, all right? So uh, let's try this. Ketuvim, ready? One, two, three. Ketuvim. Just think of ketchup, all right? But call it Ketuvim, all right? And that's where the last section of books are. And then what we did is we kind of backed, uh, we kind of zeroed in and we started looking at the Torah. And uh, we mentioned the fact that when you look at God's story, God's story is a good story. It says in Genesis 1.31 that God stood back and looked at everything he had done and created and said, it is good. So God's story is a good story. And to use bad English, it's going to, get, it's going to be an even gooder story at the end. But something's gone wrong in God's good story. And what's gone wrong are these two individuals, the human creation that he made, Adam and Eve. God gave them this wonderful gift called the truth to protect themselves, to protect the creation, refute any onslaught by evil. But rather than using the truth that God had given to them, they decided to listen to Satan's lie and ignore the truth. And as a result of that, sin and death were born not only into their lives, but into all of their children, right down to you and me. And this one thing I know for sure is that we all look alike as raw human creation, right? So while we may not be exact, exactly alike, we still all kind of resemble human beings, and we all have a sinful nature. Have you noticed that? Right? And we all die. And we all die. So we're part of this whole mess that was created. And as a result of that, God told the man and the woman they could not stay in the garden. And we looked a little bit at the spiral, the de-evolution of humanity into sin as a result of that. But before the man and the woman were dismissed out of the garden, God gave them hope and gave us hope. In Genesis 3.15, God alludes to the fact that there's somebody coming who's going to stomp out evil, though it will deal a lethal blow to that rescuer, to that savior. And it's kind of a, a picture, it's a, it's a fore-mentioning uh, of what we know to be eventually the savior, Jesus. Because even though mankind, humankind, has rebelled against God, God loves his creation. He wants to bring them back into relationship with himself. 
And so the first Adam blew it. God's intention is that the second Adam would come and take his place and not lead us out of the garden, back, but back into the garden. But who is that Savior? Who's that rescuer? In the Old Testament, they're not sure. Is it Noah? Is it going to be that next couple, Abraham and Sarah? Or is it going to be one of their children, Isaac, or a grandson, uh, Jacob? Or is it, and you go all the way down, and it's like, no, none of them are the rescuers. Why aren't they the rescuers? Because they are all flawed individuals. As good, as nice as they are, they all kind of end up making a mess. So if we zero in on the second half of the Torah, we run into this guy named Moses. And certainly Moses must be the Savior. I mean, Moses is like a prophet and a priest and a king all rolled into one. And it's Moses who gets from God the commandments and gives the commandments to the people. So certainly Moses must be the Savior. And there are many uh, uh, Jews today who would look at Moses as the Savior of Israel. He's the lawgiver. Their concept of Messiah is the Messiah does not come to save Israel spiritually, but to save Israel uh, politically. So is Moses the guy? And the answer to the question is, no, Moses is not the guy. Why? Because Moses is a terrible failure, just like you and me. He also has a sin issue. Moses has a real problem with his temper. Do any of you know anybody like that in your life? Certainly not you, right? But yes, he's got a terrible temper. In fact, it's so bad that once when he saw an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew, he killed the Egyptian and tried to bury the evidence. But you know, somebody saw it and started talking about it. And he, flee, he, he, he ran into the wilderness and God gave him a 40-year timeout. Man, that's a long timeout. And then after God had dealt with him, God said, it's time to go back to Egypt and I want you to rescue my people who fall into slavery. We learned last week from Ezekiel, they fell into slavery partially because of their idolatry, their sinfulness. Now they're all crying, we want out. And so God hears their cry and he sends Moses back reluctantly convinces Moses that he's the guy to take the people out of Egypt and lead them free. And Moses does. And they're in the wilderness. And I tell you what, if there was a group of people that were hard to lead, it was the Baptists. I mean, it was the Israelites. It was the Israelites. They were hard to lead. They were contentious and every turn complaining, griping about something. In fact, when they have an opportunity to step into the promised land, they refuse. And they spent another 40 years having to wander around the wilderness. That generation died off. And poor Moses, at one point, he just loses his cool. The people are griping once, once again, there's not enough water. And God says, speak to the rock. And he takes his staff and he beats the rock. I don't blame him. And God says, you're not going to go to the promised land because of that. Because you didn't honor me in front of the people. You didn't listen to me. You let your temper or your pride get in the way. And I always feel sorry for Moses. I mean, you talk about a guy that had to lead a difficult group and then had to deal with the pain of all of that and can't go to the promised land. Poor Moses. But he's not, he's not good enough. He's not good enough to be that savior, to be that rescuer. So then what we do is we move to a new, new uh, section of the Old Testament called the Nevi'im. We're still wondering who's the, who's the savior, who's the rescuer going to be if we're Israelites living back then. Well, it starts with the book of Joshua and then it goes to the book of Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, has some of the prophets. Joshua. You know what Joshua means? It means Savior. So Joshua must be the guy. Maybe he's the guy that's going to rescue Israel and take us back to where we need to be because Joshua had been in Egypt as a slave. Then he was Moses' second 
in command through the wilderness. He survived all of that. He was faithful to God. And now he's leading the people in to conquer the land. It must be Joshua, but it's not. Because as great as Joshua was, he too was a failure. He too had struggles in his life. And his big struggle is he didn't always consult with God. Joshua had a tendency sometimes, either because of pride or because of what happened last time, to think that he could just make a plan, go in and do it. Has that ever happened to you? Are you that way? Do you ever make plans and then ask God to bless them? It's hard not to operate that way, right? It's hard to wait on God. It's hard to pray about something. hard to get his discernment on it sometimes. And so there's a couple of instances in the book of Joshua, you can read about it, where Joshua acts without asking. In fact, God eventually says about Joshua and the people in chapter 9, verse 14, they did not consult the Lord. And so he's not the Savior. He's not the rescuer. Well, after Joshua, we go back to our diagram again, and we discover there are judges that come along, there are kings, there are prophets, there are priests. Some are good, some are not. Some, all, some start out good like David, make a really bad wrong turn. Or his son Solomon starts out as the wisest guy, becomes the biggest fool, leads the people into immorality and into idolatry. And eventually things get so bad, they're so resistant to God that there's a civil war that breaks out in Israel. Ten tribes go to the north, the northern kingdom. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to the south, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has a group of bad kings. They're very rebellious. They won't listen to the prophets. The prophets are down here shouting all the time, repent, repent, we're warning you, judgment's going to come. But, you know, they always mention that there's also a promise that God's going to keep Israel and honor his promise to Abraham, bless them and bless the world through them. Nobody seems to listen. So in 722 B.C., God allows Assyria to come in and basically scatter all the northern tribes so they'll never appear again. The southern kingdom had some good kings. They did listen to some of the prophets, but eventually they get so rebellious that God allows a guy in 586 named Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian emperor, to come in and totally flatten Jerusalem. And even though Jerusalem's flattened and they're taken and they are taken to Babylon for 70 years, the prophet Jeremiah said they'd be in captivity. God alludes to the fact that there'll be a new Israel someday. There'll be a new Jerusalem someday. There'll be this rescuer who comes and makes everything right. Who is it going to be? Which takes us to the third and final division of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, and that is the Ketuvim. And it starts, interestingly enough, with what is in the middle of our Bible, the Psalms. If you read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 carefully, you'll find out that they hearken back to the very beginning of the story. They sound very much like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There's this tree in Psalm 1, this, this life, this, this living water that streams by. It talks about a righteous one. Psalm 2 talks about a coming king. But the most important book that you'll read, and they're all significant, but the most important book that you'll read is this prophet Daniel and his prophecies. Because Daniel takes and is given this panoramic view of, of the world. And he sees what's happened in the past. He sees what's going to happen in the near future and even sees what's going to happen in our distant future, our future as well. And I've spoken on the prophecies of Daniel. Maybe we'll do it again in a couple of years. But Daniel, Daniel foresees what's going to happen and he sees that things are going to get worse. But at the end, he sees that things are going to be good. And then the Old Testament closes with what we know of as First and Second Chronicles or Chronicles. 
And what's really interesting about Chronicles is, if you read it, it's a recitation of creation to the captivity. So if you put the big diagram back on here, you end with Chronicles, but as you read Chronicles, you see that it takes you back to the beginning and gives you an overview of the entire history of what God did in what we call the Old Testament. The problem is when you get done with the Old Testament, there's still this big question mark. Where is the Savior? Where is the Rescuer? Silence. It's awkward, isn't it? If I stood up here and was silent much longer, some of you start getting uncomfortable. Be wondering what's wrong. Is he lost his voice? Is he having a vision? Why isn't he speaking? We don't like silence. And for 400 years after what we consider the Old Testament, there's absolute silence. No prophet, no king in Israel. It's like God has packed up and gone home. Where is God? And that happens in your life and my life too, doesn't it? There are those times of silence, both personally, sometimes within the church body itself, sometimes you sense it in the world. Where is God right now with all this going on politically and, and biologically and, and uh, socially? Where is God? When you're in that moment, we feel absolutely alone. Where is God? And what's fascinating is if you read the Old Testament carefully, God keeps telling his people, when it feels like I'm not there, you need to trust and believe in my promises. That what I say, I'm going to do. No matter how young, how old you are. Trust in my promises. And it's hard to trust in God's promises when a long period of time has gone by. I don't know if you notice it or not, but Jesus hasn't come yet. It's been 2,000 plus years. Where is God? Is this really true? Or is this just a myth? I mean, if we wonder that, imagine what they wondered for a long time. And so I want to talk about, uh, the rest of our time, I want to talk about the promises of God. You're going to find this, I think you're going to find this very exciting and helpful in just a few minutes. But when we talk about the promises of God, to use a biblical term, we're talking about the covenant. Let's all say that word together. Ready? Covenant. All on the same page. But what on earth is a covenant? Well, in the Old Testament, there are about seven or eight major covenants. Some are conditional only to Israel. Some are unconditional, some apply to you and me. If you go to thebibleproject.com, you can watch a little video on four of the covenants. It's very good. But I want to focus on one covenant, one promise, and that's to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a kid. You're barren, but you and your wife are going to have a kid. Through him and your family, I'm going to make, I'm going to multiply you guys like the stars in the sky. It's going to be a whole lot of you. And I'm going to give you land, and listen, I'm going to bless the world through you. So think about it this way for a moment. So you think of God, all right? Imagine God has this hand, all right? That didn't look good. Try that one again. God. That hurt. The people online are not laughing at me. All right, you can laugh. I don't care, all right? So you've got this hand. That's better. He's got this myth because he's in Minnesota. And, uh, and then you got Abraham, right? Abraham is a friend of God. That makes you happy, all right? He's got skinny hands compared to God, all right? All right, that's a covenant, all right? There's this agreement between the two. 
And what happens is God says to Abraham, some of this agreement is just for you and your family, Israel. But there's some of this agreement, Abraham, that is for the whole world, skinny world, all right? And for all the people who live in the world, I'm giving you this promise. I'm going to bless them through you. So in that sense, we also have a hand in the Abraham, Abra, uh, Abrahamic covenant. In that the seed that is to come, the Messiah, is for the whole world. So I want, I want you to keep that in mind for just a moment. And then I want you to turn and later on read completely Genesis chapter 15. Because that's where God makes this covenant with, with Abraham that affects all of us. So what's the difference between a covenant and, for instance, a contract? A contract is impersonal. A contract is an agreement between individuals regarding goods, services. I'll keep my part of the contract, you keep your part of the contract, and we're fine. If you don't, I'll sue you or you'll sue me, okay? And a lot of you, a lot of us are in contracts with the cable company or the telephone company or whatever it is, okay? A lot of you do business with contracts. Covenants, however, are very different. Covenants are very personal. Covenants are very relational. And covenants require sacrifice, self-sacrifice. So God's concept of a covenant, and today even our concept of a covenant is very different. And that's why if you want to understand why God says so much about marriage, why marriage is so important in our culture where you know, there's so much talk about why get married, why not live together, test it out, and then get married. I hear it from Christian young adults and older adults as well. The reason why we don't believe in that is because God puts a huge emphasis on what marriage is. It's a covenantal relationship. So, you know, if you want a, kind of a, a, a little bit of a, a definition or a way to think about covenant, think about marriage in its proper sense. So that's what the Lexham Bible Dictionary tells us. Tim Keller takes us a little bit deeper into this. And Tim Keller says, you know, today we have a confused idea what a covenant is. He said, today we treat it this way. He says, in modern culture, we see it this way. I'll be what I should be as long and as to the degree that you are what you should be. And if you're not, then I'm not. So like kids fighting in a sandbox, doesn't it? I'll be what I should be as long as and to the degree that you are what you should be and if you're not then I'm not now all of us fight in a sandbox and everybody here who is married I don't care how good your marriage is aren't there times when you dilute the covenant you made to each other on your wedding day or night and basically devolve into this behavior how many of you say, yep, happens in my marriage? Yeah. Those moments, right, when you look at the other person and you say, well, if you're going to be a jerk, now we don't say it, but we know we're going to do it, I'm going to be a jerk. If you're going to act that way, then I'm going to act that way. That is not a covenant. That is not a covenant. So what is a covenant? Well, Keller says a covenant goes like this. I will be what I should be whether you are being who you should be or not. In the covenant, both people have to say that. 
Baby, this should be like the new wedding vows. Stand in front of each other. The groom says to the bride, Honey, I promise you that I will be what I should be even if you're not. And she says, Good. <laughs> no. It has to go both ways, right? We have to both say it to each other. That requires sacrifice. That requires loyalty. That is hard to do. Now keep that in mind, okay? Abraham understood this because this is how ancient covenants were ratified. Now let's go to Genesis 15. Watch this. The Lord told <clears throat> Abram, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, Abram had no issue with that because what God is initiating was an ancient covenant. This was done between kings and vassals and different groups of people. It goes on, it says, so Abram presented all these to him and then Abram killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. They were too big. It's down there for a long time. Vultures swoop down and he has to, he has to um, uh, chase them away so they don't eat the carcasses. Nothing unusual yet. To us, yes. All right? Imagine buying your car this way. But uh, to, to the ancients, no. So here's what would happen in the ancient culture. A covenant would be made. Let's say, a, let's say a king with his vassal. The animals are split, and the king walks through the aisleway between the split animals. Walks through, walks through, walks through. And he says to his vassal, Listen, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, may what has happened to those animals happen to me. May I be torn apart. Then the vassal walks through the animals. And says to the king, and if I don't keep my part of the covenant, may what has happened to those animals happen to me as well. So Abram has no issue right now until this happens. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Now, it's not because he's been up all night. This is, this is a God thing that's happening to him. And a terrifying darkness came down over him, you know, this impending sense of judgment. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. This is the presence of God passing between the carcasses. Now Abraham's getting, Abram's getting intrigued. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. Read the whole chapter, you get more into the context. Read 12 through 15. It's not just that God's saying, I promise you to give the land, and I promise to multiply you. God's also saying, and through you will come to seed that will bless the whole world. So all of this is wrapped up in this covenant, and Abram is shocked. See, I, I'm not following you. I'm not, I'm not sure what's so surprising. You said that's how the ancients did it. Well, here's what's shocking about it. When God passes through those split animals, God is saying to Abram this, if I don't keep my promise to you, Abram, to multiply your family, to give you the land, and to bless the world through you, may I, God, Yahweh, may I be torn apart like these animals. But that's not what's really shocking. Because if you look at this covenant, Abram never walks through the animals. 
He doesn't pass through it. Instead, when God passes through it, he not only passes for himself, but God also passes for Abram. In essence, what God is saying to Abram is this. And Abram, if you don't keep your promise, may I, God, be torn apart. And that's what the cross is all about. Because on the cross, Jesus, in essence, is torn apart. God is torn apart. Why? Because God knows we don't keep promises. Adam and Eve didn't. And as I've tried to show you all the way through the Old Testament to this very day, right down to you and me, we don't keep our promises. We are far from perfect. And so God keeps the promise for us. Jesus comes. He lives the perfect life. He does not succumb to temptation, the wilderness experience. But he dies my death so I can live his life. He joins me to that hand of God. Isn't that amazing? See, here's the problem. I say that, you say that, but wow, when's the last time we just let it soak in? We just get too familiar with some of these things. Most of us could probably sing at least the first verse of Amazing Grace. We've heard it so many times, but isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? And so next weekend, we're going to pick up the New Testament. We're going to go through the whole New Testament focusing on this rescuer and this Savior. We're even going to get to the book of Revelation. Because there's something wonderful. We put that big graphic back up here. You know, the Old Testament, I said, ends with Chronicles, which actually starts with the beginning. Well, if you look at the New Testament, it ends with a book called said that a few times, didn't I? All right. Ends with a book of Revelation, not Chronicles. All right. So Rev. All right. If you look at the last two chapters of Revelation, chapter 21 and chapter 22, what do they do? They take you back to the beginning. They take you to a garden. They take you to a river. They take you to a new heaven, a new earth. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain. They take you back to Eden and into a partnership with God. And there's no more tears and no more sorrow and no more death. It's the way it was meant to be. Because we have, as Paul says, we have a new Adam. And his name is actually not Adam, but who? His name, his name is Jesus. And he comes for you and he comes for me. It is a good story, isn't it? And that's why I'm telling you, no matter what's happening politically, no matter what's happening with disease, no matter what's happening with all the other stuff that's going on in this world. And listen, in your life and my life, I want you to hang in there. God makes promises and God keeps promises. And you have to keep them and see them within the context of his word. He promised he would send a savior. We know the savior came. And he promises us that the savior is coming again. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for sending the Savior, Jesus Christ, for keeping your promise for us. Now, Lord, we are looking forward to him coming again, but it's been 2,000 plus years. I reminded what they were saying in Peter's day. Where is God? Where is he? Where is the promise? And through Peter, you remind us that you're willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Your promise will happen at the right time. 
In the meantime, Father, help us in these days to be your witnesses, to be a light, to live with hope in our step and in our words and our attitudes. Thank you, Father, that the story gets better. Help us to trust in that good news. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Why don't you stand? And uh, I guess we're doing the wave. Next weekend, I'll teach you the Whitdale nod. God bless you. Dismissed.